Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Breast milk science. It's a thing. And it's our thing. We're Byheart. We're an infant formula company on a mission to get a lot closer to the most super, super food on the planet. Breast milk. Our patented protein blend has more of the important and most abundant proteins found in breast milk. We're the first and only U.S.-made formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. We make our formula in our own factories in Iowa, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, using a small batch manufacturing process that works to preserve the integrity of our ingredients. We ran the largest clinical trial by a new infant formula company in 25 years and clinically proved benefits like easier digestion, less gas, and softer poops versus a leading infant formula. We were the first infant formula company to earn the Clean Label Project Purity Award. And while we've put a lot into Byheart, there's a long list of things you won't see on our ingredient list, like no corn syrup, no maltodextrin, no GMO ingredients, no soy, no palm oil. Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome to True Crime Sucks, a podcast about the best and worst of true crime TV and documentaries. With your host, Adam Todd Brown. Hey, everybody. Welcome to True Crime Sucks, a podcast about the best and worst of true crime TV and documentaries. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown, joining me as co-host this week, Andy Sal is here. You know him. You love him. Hey, do you? Do you know me and love me? Well, I mean, this Does- is a spinoff of the Pretty Scary podcast, and you've been on that a few times, including very yeah. recently. Yeah, very recently. Yeah. I was just, I don't, like, my whole thing is, does anybody really know anyone? That's true. You know? That's true. I think that's, this, that's the real story behind all true crime is does anyone really know Andy Sell? Yeah, per- specifically me. Yeah. <laughs> specifically. Andy, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty uh pretty sweet. Yeah. Pretty sweet. I know we usually do this at the end, but uh I've been having a good time uh recording new episodes of Look Good for the Boys. Oh, okay, sure. Plugs. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I was just on an episode of the Life Was Peachy podcast, and we were talking about the Slipknot album Iowa. And, okay, uh, so that was a lot. That was a lot of fun. So I've been doing good. I've been doing good lately. All right, great. Yeah, podcast yeah. appearances. That is generally the gauge of how good a person's <laughs> yeah. doing. That is the yardstick of mental health. Yeah. How absolutely. many podcasts have you been on? If it's more than three in the last week, you have a problem. Oh, I have had a problem for a long, <laughs> long time. Such a long time. So this week, thankfully, we are taking on a slightly less heavy documentary. Last week, we covered Jared from Subway catching oh, a monster. That, that is not, that's not going to be an easy watch, huh? It is not feel-good television. That is for sure. There were tears 
on the episode. People cried. Very heavy. This week, we are doing a pretty much a complete 180 in terms of heaviness of topic. We are covering the Pez Outlaw, which yeah. was your suggestion. Had you seen this already, or did you just want to yeah. watch it? No, I had seen it. I was actually asking for recommendations from people, uh, I don't know, on Instagram or something. And a friend of mine recommended this to me, like, at the beginning of the year. Oh, yeah. And uh, I liked it because it's a 180 from stuff like that. Because it's like, this is largely victimless crime. This is like, it's a feel-good story. It's not really a feel-good story, but like, there are no messy implications or ideological or ethical concerns to really weigh heavily on your read on this film. So I like that kind of true crime where it's like, I don't feel guilty about watching it. Yeah. And I said early on in this podcast series that, you know, true crime should make you feel a little bad inside when you watch it. And there's obviously exceptions. And I think this is an exception. This is billed as an upbeat documentary, and it is yeah. a pretty upbeat documentary. Like, things don't go exactly the way you would want <laughs> in the end for the subject of this documentary, but no one dies. There's no yeah. there's no one really being victimized here. It is as close to a feel-good documentary as true crime gets. Yeah, I think that there are some moments of kind of like well this is a sad thing uh and we're tackling some heavy stuff here and there but they don't really tackle it they just kind of nod to it and there are implications throughout of like certain characters and things having darker things going on but the film never chooses to really look at those it's just like this is the story and yeah there are a couple of maybe difficult themes but you're not yeah exactly i i like that it it tries to keep it upbeat and it does it a lot through these like really fun dramatizations that yeah. i enjoy a lot yeah i also just never knew anything about pez collecting like i know it's a thing that people collect but i didn't know there were all these weird import laws and all this friction between these shady, like, European factories making Pez dispensers and Pez yeah. in the U.S. Really interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. It opens up a couple worlds, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I also didn't know cereal box collecting was a thing. <laughs> but yeah. it sure is. And so this documentary, you can watch it on Netflix. It's very short. It's like an hour and 20 minutes, which, love it. Love a short documentary king. (laughs) It covers the story of a guy named Steve Glue, who hit a lick importing Pez dispensers that he wasn't supposed to import. And when we say it's true crime, there actually wasn't really a crime here. And we'll get to why, but it's because of like a bookkeeping error. Otherwise, this would have been a crime that he probably would have gotten in trouble for. But yeah, there's actually a thing towards the end, like one of his last big caper. I'm still a little unclear on how exactly that even happened, like how exactly there were like that was legal and that so many people because a lot of different entities had to be involved. And it was like, did none of them (laughs) think that maybe this wasn't how this works? Like not like along the way, nobody asked any questions. Yes, that seems like one of the characteristics of this for sure. There were not yeah. enough questions asked. <laughs> yeah, and so it covers 
again, a guy named Steve Glue, along with his wife, Kathy Glue, and their son, <sighs> Josh Glue. I, Steve and Kathy are my new favorite people in, they are in the world. An adorable couple who <laughs> yeah. love each other so much. And that's great. Yeah. And Steve, you ha- when you tell a story like this, it, I mean, first of all, stories like this only happen because of people like Steve Clue in this world. But also, like, this is ripe for a feature film, you know, for like yes. a narrative feature film. And the dramatizations show that. And Steve Clue himself is like such a immediately likable and interesting person. Yes. And he's good in the reenactments. Like, a lot of yeah. times... <laughs> As himself... <laughs> Yeah, there's other documentaries that do that, where the subject is also doing the reenactments, and sometimes it can be really distracting. And in this case, I didn't find it distracting at all. I thought Steve was very engaging on camera. Yeah. And he wasn't, like, overacting. You could tell he wasn't doing it with the thought that, oh, I'm going to become an actor after this. Yeah, no, he definitely seemed to be having fun, but he was also like, he was very good, just a natural, just a natural. Yeah. And so Steve grew up very poor. The family was poor. How about that part where they bought a house and a huge plot of land for 20 grand, though? I I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, I wonder what that's worth now. Holy shit, right? That is like, insane. Because also it's Michigan, which, yeah, there are parts of Michigan where, I mean, I think land is expensive everywhere now, though, right? Yeah. Like, and it I doesn't think matter where it is. If I'm not mistaken, it's pronounced Michigan, right? Oh, yeah. M- <laughs> Michigan. Yeah. Fishigan. <laughs> yeah, they bought this huge plot of land in Michigan, but Steve just worked as a machinist in a factory for like 25 years, really low wages. He'd spend his days reading tom clancy books and thinking about how to make a better life for himself he said he always inside knew there was more like he was gonna accomplish more but he was just stuck in a quarter century rut my question is what if he'd been reading a different author (laughs) when he was going through this you know because like clearly like later on we get into some of his mental health complications but He's got a big imagination, and he's in this job he hates for decades, and he's spending every day, like, trying to brainstorm a way out while he's reading Tom Clancy books. There was a convergence of things there to create the story that we're about to talk about. But what if he'd been reading, I don't know, the Fifty Shades of Grey books? Or (laughs) I imagine if he was reading Clive Cussler, this would have shaken out pretty much the same but what if it was like i don't know stephen king or uh <laughs> i feel like he might have tried a different scheme so this is mostly brett, on tom clancy brett easton ellis oh, or whatever God. that guy's name is yeah brett easton ellis yeah that's what he should be reading then then this story has a body count yeah, yeah then then things are gonna take a turn yeah and yeah you already mentioned he Struggled with depression a lot, and he coped with it in part by collecting cereal boxes. Again, did not know that was a thing. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting hobby. That said, I did have a Michael Jordan and a Walter Payton Wheaties box when I was a kid. Like, well, two of them. Yeah, and it's... I bet if I still had those, they'd probably sell for something. Yeah, they might. If they were in, like, 
unopened condition. Yeah, I don't know. Well, he has his all like the boxes are like collapsed and pressed, and they're like in these stacks. And he even yeah. says that like it's not even so much just about the boxes, about having the stacks of box. There's like a tactile quality to how it calms him, which yeah. is very it's interesting. Yeah, um, he talks about like just going out to the local grocery store and just buying up <laughs> boxes of cereal, and it's like, is that how? <laughs> collecting works are they putting the rare <laughs> drops in your local michigan supermarket i don't know maybe i don't know maybe yeah. it's a test market he seemed really proud of his box of cosmic captain crunch yeah he was really into that cosmic captain crunch i remember that and yeah i bet if we look it up that's probably like a 10k box of cereal <laughs> I tell you this, I had a hard time finding strawberry frosted flakes when those came out. And by that, oh, yeah. I mean I had to go to Target. They didn't have them at the grocery store I normally go to, <laughs> but they had them at Target. And That's how I always am when the monster cereals come out every year is like, all right, which store's got the, yeah, everybody's got Count Chocula and Frankenberry, but who's got Yummy Mummy? Who's got Fruit Brute? Where's right, that at? Right, yeah. Another thing I found interesting about his cereal box collecting was that it eventually evolved into him collecting redemption prizes. Yes. Which are a thing where if you send in like a certain number of box tops or proof of purchase codes with G.I. Joe's, it was flag points. And you send in enough and they'll send you back a little toy or trinket. And I guess it makes sense, but I never realized there's a market for that, too. I wonder, he's got to be doing that, like, is it just, is he only doing that with cereal, or is he also, like, collecting camel cash, and, you would hope, you know, these, the G.I. Joe things, like, and earning rewards that way, earning points that way, like, maybe this, it's just this, because this is the one that came out of cereal boxes, or this is the one that, like, had uh, an exploitable quality to it. Yeah, either way, he ends up basically selling redemption prizes he goes around to like flea markets and toy conventions and things yeah and sets up a table and sells these prizes (laughs) that you can only get by eating the right amount of cereal and sending in these points so he's doing all that work for people and then in turn he's selling them these prizes for obviously a premium yeah and He does it so much and so successfully that at least he claims he is the reason that those redemption prizes now say one per household. My question is, why did it take someone pointing that flaw out for someone for anyone at the companies to notice it? Like, there's no way Steve Glue was the first and only guy that was like, I'm going to exploit this. You know, it's like Adam Sandler with the yogurt. In Punch Drunk Love, like, I think that's just an instinct for some people. I just, it's weird to think that, like, they didn't have that rule to begin with. Yeah. You know, it it took somebody really exploiting it to get them to say, okay, maybe we should have put a limitation on this. Yeah, it reminds me of the documentary Pepsi Where's My Jet. Have you seen that? No. Is that somebody about, I've heard about it, though. It's Pepsi Points, right? Yeah, Pepsi did this commercial to advertise their pepsi points thing oh i do yeah and just as a joke at the end they said you could get an f-16 fighter jet with eight million points and (laughs) there was a kid watching who was like that sounds attainable like i feel like i can get eight million points and he teams up with this investor and oh my god 
they end up getting the eight million points yeah. and like suing Pepsi because they're like, give us our fucking jet. And at no point did anyone at Pepsi when that commercial was being made, at no point was anyone like, hey, that's like way less than it would cost to buy a jet for real. Like you could buy <laughs> eight million Pepsi points for way less. Yeah, I mean, than even if you're jet would cost. even if you're not going to put a disclaimer on the screen, which I think would be the easiest way to yes. do this. Right. At least like do your math right when it comes yeah. to like the writing. Pro- like that's just bad writing. You need to research whoever whoever turned that script in because this is needed the- to be told. You need to do your research about the cost of fighter jets because this is the 90s. And so a yeah. Pepsi was like a dollar at the time. <laughs> so that's like an eight million dollar fighter jet, which that's pretty cheap. That's a cheap fighter jet. That's a yeah. cheap As- fighter jet. Ask any school district that doesn't have lunch for its kids because of the military budget. Right, right, exactly. Ask your local police department what they paid for their F-16 fighter jet. (laughs) We're only like a year away from that being reality. (laughs) Oh, for sure, for sure. So once they put that one per household rule in place, Steve Glue was kind of screwed. Like he couldn't carry on with his newfound career selling redemption prizes and at his last show his very last show where he's selling the last of his stockpile of these prizes he sees someone selling pez dispensers and decides that that's going to be his next hustle (laughs) that's the new thing and he follows this person who was selling these dispensers and asks her where she got them and she just says kalinska they have this really fun film noir dramatization with a Citizen Kane <laughs> reference in it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they dramatize it. Like all of the dramatizations look like spy shit. They're all, yeah, they do that when he's reading the Tom Clancy book. There's a little dramatization. All the dramatizations are fun. Yeah. Like, and Kalinska is in Slovenia. So yeah. it's a long ways away. He had never been to Europe at all. Yeah. But and this is a part of Europe where things are not great. Yes. Like it's <laughs> right on the, in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. It's on the border of Croatia, which yeah. lots of war stuff happening in this region in the mid nineties. And so it's a risky proposition, but he's like, fuck it. I guess we're going to go to Europe. His son sets everything up. Yeah. I really like that bit that it was the son that was like, my dad has a dream. Yeah. I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> I'm going to make my dad's black market pest (laughs) dreams come true. They take out a loan from their local credit union to finance this trip. And they're looking for a Pez factory in Slovenia. And they managed to find it on account of how the address was printed on the back of the Pez dispenser they were carrying around with them. How they never thought to check that until that moment, I, I have no idea. Again, so much of this is just a story of people not, like, they're they're leaving one base uncovered every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just always like, wait, no, that, that thing. Okay. So they must have just landed and started, like, walking up to people being like, Pez? You know where the Pez is? Yeah. And then they finally well, look on back and they're like, oh, address. Well, right. His son, Josh, says something about like being a dumb American goes a long way or or playing up the dumb American angle goes a long way. Yeah. And it probably in a situation like that could keep you kind of safe. Yeah. Because wartime, you're already you already got a lot of heat on you from the world stage. You don't want to go killing American tourists. 
yeah. in the process. So they end up finding this Pez dispenser factory. And they meet up with a guy named Marcos who shows them around. And they said it was like hitting the lottery. Just all the Pez dispensers you could ever hope to find, <laughs> including a whole heap of stuff that was not sold in the United States. He does say something here, right, where he like compares it to walking into the chocolate factory yes the willy wonka and it's like what happened to those kids though man like this is a different <laughs> nobody a good point. came and turned you into a pez dispenser <laughs> yeah have some respect steve glue yeah read the source material for the, okay for the victims of that chocolate factory <laughs> and yeah this is where they get into the relationship between Pez in Europe and Pez in the United States. Pez USA, for some reason, just rejected a whole bunch of designs that the designers in Europe made, including Marcos, who was one of the Pez designers. And it seems like there wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason to it. If there was one they didn't like, they would just reject it and not sell it in the U.S. Because... Yeah. At first, I was like, can't people just buy these in the United States? Like, what is the deal? And that's the deal. There was a guy named Scott McWinnie, who they called the president, who was in God charge of Pez USA. And he just rejected designs left and right. And that created this black market in the U.S. that Steve Glue was able to exploit. Yeah. And in a way that I don't think any on a level that nobody else was doing because right. and the, and in the U.S. it's not like he's coming to sell these like it's 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 so weird because you're, we're talking about an industry here or a company here that is like part of the novelty and candy industries right like it's just cheapo like it's in the checkout line at the right. grocery store you know that's its casual market right it's passive market but then you have this whole other world of the pez collectors and that's what steve glue is getting involved in and it's like the thing we get with scott mcwinney who is like at this point when he's introduced it's like okay here we now have our villain of the story right and it seems like his whole thing was that he was so concerned about the collector market not being covered by the company, that it was like he viewed it as like a problem to be dealt with. It's like, no, you should be just concerned about your passive market, about like the market that you guys are selling these things on, like on the consumer level. Don't concern yourself with the collector stuff. But then in comes Steve Glue, who's like going to just aggressively stimulate that collector's market w in a way that Pez has to notice. Right. So it's it's just like this storm of, of, of conditions. And yeah, when they're at this factory in Slovenia, Marco is like, yeah, they, you know, they just rejected a whole bunch of my stuff, like all the cool stuff. And also, I love American money. So if you would like to give me some in exchange for these designs of mine, let's do it. And yeah. they end up buying a bunch of stuff with very little hassle, just like huge duffel bags full of rare Pez dispensers. Now they have to get them through customs. And so they're traveling with all of these bags of Pez dispensers. <laughs> and first he says he like acts kind of crazy. So he seems harmless. Yeah. Which they're interviewing a customs agent at the same time as Steve is talking about this. And the guy's like, no, 
that's not yeah, how that works. That. Like if yeah, you act you crazy, will stick out, we will notice you. Yeah, we're we're gonna pay extra attention to you. Yeah, and that's kind of what happens to Steve in this moment. Yeah, he gets uh... he gets called <laughs> in, and they pull him in, and he's got all these bags full of Pez dispensers, and the guy's like, "Well, you don't have the license to import these into the United States." This isn't your trademark. You can't do this. Yeah. And he whips out this book where when you're at customs, if you're trying to do what Steve Glue is doing, they have a book or probably a computer program now. We're actually knowing how the government works. It's probably still a book. It's probably still a book. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it depends on the airport. Yeah. It's either still a book or it's like a computer program, but like with the black screen and the green font, like that, yeah. <laughs> that kind of terminal. Yeah. And in this book is where... Companies register their trademarks so customs can go, all right, Pez, let's flip to the P's, and yep, this is not your trademark. And the guy whips out this book and flips to the P's. Pez never registered their trademark. Yeah, they never, well, they registered it, you know. They registered it. the patent office and all this, but but not with customs. Like, they didn't do the, they didn't follow up or do their due diligence of, like, calling the customs office and being like, so we have this. So if anybody tries to bring in customs stuff there, uh, stuff through customs, they better be with us. You know? Right. Uh, and they just didn't do it. So again, again, you just, <laughs> you didn't cross that T. You didn't do that. You didn't ask the one question you needed to ask to stop him here. And I think this must be the part that Pez took a while to figure out. Yeah. Because once these, like, not knockoffs, but, like, these black market Pez dispensers that shouldn't be in the U.S. start coming into the U.S., they had to be like, how is this happening? And I bet it took a little bit for someone to be like, hey, did you call customs and register our trademark with them? And the customs agent, when he finds this out, the quote is... If they're that stupid, go ahead. <laughs> he just lets Steve Glue take all of these Pez dispensers into the United States. And then he gets back to the United States and all oh, this part would suck. Like yeah, he's basic back. he's basically brought a bag full of money back from Slovenia with him. Yeah. But it hasn't turned into actual money yet, so he's got to go back to his shitty day job for a while that would be those read those tom clancy books buddy right and so he does eventually quit and that's because word gets around in the pez collector community that he has returned from slovenia and has is it the bubble boy or the bubble man they call it the bubble man the bubble boy and the bubble gum man i want to say that like there's maybe one name that Scott McWinnie, when he created it, was going with, and then the because it never got released, it never had an official name, and then I imagine the collectors just call it whatever they want to call it. Like, yeah, there's probably a few different nicknames for it, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's what right, it's what one that was designed by president scott McWinney as like a bubblegum pez dispenser and then they never sold it for whatever reason they didn't make it and then marcos gives one to josh to steve's son yeah when they're at the factory and and because it's this big like lost pez dispenser like only 20 in existence or whatever right they like it's a prototype so like people are calling steve left and right to make offers yeah, he starts getting calls and people are giving him three and four hundred dollars for Pez dispensers that he paid 27 cents each 
four. So that's when he finally quits his job. He says he remembers Enya's sail away playing <laughs> as he walked out. Orinoco flow, baby. Hell yeah. I love that moment. That's like, <laughs> yeah. And especially for it to be that song that he's like, and he like loves that song. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. So from there, the documentary gets into the Pez collecting community. Uh. They talk to a few different people, one of them being John Devlin, whose nickname is the Cool Pez Man. The Cool Pez Man. I, my favorite quote, one of my favorite lines in this movie is when he's like, you know, I like to drink scotch. I like fast cars. <laughs> Know him and you're like no no stop yeah he just likes pez yeah <laughs> like yeah, i'm but, about to i'm about to think that fast cars and scotch aren't cool because you like them so yeah they talked to john devlin the cool pez man some other collectors jim blaine tina gunsalls johan patek all the big names all the names yeah. You've heard them. You know them. You know them. You love them. I'm sure by the time I got Tina's name out, the listeners were like, Johan. And then next is Johan, obviously. This is how they always say it. So Steve, he hears that the real Pez gold mine is in Hungary and that the guy to see there is a guy named Gunther. He finds his way to the Pez dispenser factory in Hungary. He finds Gunther and Gunther wants to sell him a truck full yeah, I of love, Pez dispensers. I love that Gunther is immediately just like, yeah, let's stimulate the black market. Why not? Fuck it. Yeah. He's like, I will sell you just anything you want. Yeah. And Steve's like, I only brought four grand, so I can't buy a full truck, but I'll buy yeah. what I can buy with four grand, which was a letdown for Gunther, but he ends up selling Steve whatever he can buy. Yeah. They talk about a lot of times they bring up Steve's appearance and how Steve uses that to his advantage because people will underestimate you if you look, you know, unhoused or, you know, like you're going through something like with his beard and his, you know, and there's even like that Johan guy keeps saying that he looks, you know, bad, but whatever. Um, So my question is like, how did he walk in and Gunther looks at Steve and is like, oh, here's a big, this is a big spender. This is this guy's a major player. Or is it just that like Gunther has been waiting his whole life for a for a moment like this to just be like, oh, somebody from the black market's going to come any day now and I'm just going to I'm going to could I'm be make so much money and he was just waiting for this and so Steve comes in and is like I want to buy Pez and he's like, "Okay, we're going to send a truck to the airport for you." <laughs> yeah, and how was he going to get that through customs? Crazy. Right? Yeah, that's the thing is like he must have just thought Steve had a plan for that, but like there was no plan. There was no plan <laughs> at all. And so around this time, Pez USA starts hearing about dispensers from Europe being sold in the United States, and they're on a mission <sighs> to find out who's selling them. And that's when we meet Richie Baliski, who is a Pez collector and a former cop. And it seems like most of the Pez collectors interviewed here all agree he was essentially a spy for the Pez Corporation. Fucking hall monitor. And Richie himself says people called him the Pez police. And I'm like, why would they do that if you weren't? Yeah, you are. Look at you. (laughs) Yeah. Look at you. You are. You scream cop. Like. And as a former. A cab includes Rich (laughs) Beliski. Oh, for sure. And as a former cop, I'm sure he approached Pez and was like, hey. 
Oh yeah, I can do some cop shit for you now he that I'm retired. He probably wrote a fucking letter to to Scott McWinney. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Like there was a bubble boy in circulation. Yeah, that could have been the inciting incident that turned him in to the Pez police because someone from Pez says that Rich would write and report anything they wanted him to. And this is also the point where the bubble boy dispenser starts circulating. That's right. And it shows up at the one convention that is on the news. Right. And so, like you mentioned earlier, that dispenser was the president's idea. It was Scott McWinney's idea. He designed it and it ended up like getting shelved and never came out. Or at least it it reminds me a lot of Metallica's initial complaint with Napster, which I think was valid. Then it got it got a little weird as it carried on. But <laughs> yeah. their initial gripe was they had this song that was going to be on the Mission Impossible soundtrack. And it was their first song in like five years, maybe more. And at one point, someone stole an unfinished copy and uploaded it to Napster. And they were like, we should at least be able to decide how people hear our music when it comes out. Like, it's up to us if we want to put that fucking demo version out as opposed to, you know, the finished version. I kind of get the point they were trying yeah. to make there. Yeah. And I kind of get Scott McWinney's point here, too. Like, he'd been designing this thing, and it wasn't that it was never going to come out. It just got shelved for a while. He had to focus on other things. So this is well, the black market, like, sort of stealing his thunder a little bit. I, I think the thing with Scott, I think what really activated Scott here was that then they called it ugly on the news broadcast. Like the the woman yeah. who was talking about it was like, and then you see this one, uh, they were going to put it out and then I think they thought better of it and were like, what were we thinking? And then the guy was like, yeah, it's butt ugly. And she was like, it really is. And I think that's when Scott was like, oh, you do not call my beautiful bubble boy ugly. And now it's war. Yeah, and it is so ugly. And it's the one that like if <laughs> it's really stupid. If you were taking me through a Pez museum and you pointed at that one and you were like, that one's haunted, I'd be like, Yeah, it looks <laughs> yeah. like the haunted one, sure. <laughs> that's that's the one Zach Baggins keeps in his, <laughs> exactly. in his place. Although I don't know if you had this same feeling I did, but when they first said the bubble boy dispenser, I was like, am I about to see that kid that had to live in a bubble as a Pez dispenser? It's a a Pez dispenser in a bubble. (laughs) Yeah, you open the bubble, he throws you a Pez and then dies. No, you just can't open the bubble. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he throws it and it just bounces against the side. Eventually he drowns in Pez. Very fun, very fun. You can only get that one in Croatia. It teaches children to be careful what they wish for. (laughs) Exactly. That is, yeah, that's a very Croatian Pez dispenser. (laughs) And so what Scott ends up doing to, I mean, the way they said it was he kind of fucked over the collector's market. Yeah. He decides to me like that was his thing the whole time, right? He just doesn't like the collectors. And so he has this cop spying on the collectors for him. And then Steve Glue really is just like, you know, the collector he hates the most, I guess. Yeah. And I still am not quite clear how this ends up screwing over the collectors. But what he does is he just produces a bunch of (laughs) bubble boy dispensers in the United States and puts a bunch of them out. But my 
thought on that was like, wouldn't there still be a market for like the ones that have the Pez dispenser factory address right. on the back? Or I guess he's not selling them like mint on card, I guess. No, yeah, exactly. That's the thing is that like there probably still is like a, a distinction between the black market ones and the official Pez. But like it's also a, a situation where like the ones that are coming out are mint on card that the factory is putting out for the like consumer market. Right. And the one that's available in the collector's market now might kind of like since they're black market could be appeared to be like counterfeit or fraudulent in some ways. So yeah. it's like there's probably further distinctions on like the manufacturing specifications, but like the gap between the value is definitely going to shrink. So yeah. I think that that's I mean, you see that too, like when my collection disease is movies and especially like now there's all these like specialty boutique labels putting out like new collector's edition blu-rays of movies and and every time somebody announces one you'll go to like the half price books and it'll suddenly be like you'll see all these out of print dvds of horror movies that people are getting rid of because they're gonna upgrade to the blu-ray now so these things that we're selling for like you know hundreds of dollars on ebay or whatever because it's an out of print dvd or whatever suddenly like overnight it's like well this isn't worth that anymore because vinegar syndrome's putting it out yeah i very nearly paid well over a hundred dollars for an import copy of grindhouse oh shit because at first when it was released in the u.s they didn't release the whole yeah theatrical version it was just the two movies separate and i wanted that the i love the fucking three hour version with the trailers in the middle and i almost bought it and like three months later they put out they put it out the theatrical version so i'm glad i didn't i have done that i have like i had a i mean it wasn't i didn't spend a lot of money on something but i would like (laughs) Spend more money than I normally would on a Blu-ray, and then it would come in, and then, like, literally the day it came in, Dawn of the Discs would be like, Vinegar Syndrome's putting this out, and it's like, I just did that. Yeah. <sighs> so, yeah, I don't know if I'm supposed to be mad at Scott McWinney for putting out all those Bubble Boy dispensers, no, but I'm really not. I mean, I'm mad at him just because I'm default mad at him. Yeah, I mean, like, he seems like a corporate CEO dick, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the pettiness of being, like, sorry, the pezziness of being uh, (laughs) the president of this big company that has all this power and being like, well, I'm going to use it to destroy. It's like shooting the Death Star at one person, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you don't. in this occasion, it's like, yeah, I don't care. I don't care about Bubble Boy. I don't care that, like, you know. But also, you do start to see, like, the real-life consequences because, you know, we're talking about the money that Steve starts making. It's like he's putting his kids through college. Like, his family's future is riding on this Pez shit. Yeah, he's making good money around this time yeah he's able to put his daughter through college without her getting loans which that's fucking awesome yeah he gives he gives his horse girl wife her dreams yes (laughs) yeah the wife loves horses i love that she's a horse girl yeah i also love that her first thing she says about steve when they when they started dating was the sex was great and it still is yeah she really she lingers on that for a bit she loves fucking that weird dude (laughs) (laughs) and so he's he's in a good spot but then he starts kind of pushing it 
And by that, I mean he starts running full-page ads. Yeah, this is the part where it's like, all right, dude, have some self-awareness. Yeah, and he turns it into a huge business. And this is where Pez USA really keys in on Steve personally. And he's, like, making solo trips to Europe by this point. He's really going after it. This is the career now. Yeah. Which you think you'd at least diversify a little bit. And yeah, like expand a little bit beyond Pez, like find a couple other things yeah. to maybe... Don't put all your Pez in you one know? dispenser, you know? Yeah. <laughs> As the old adage goes. Yeah, for sure. By 1993, Don't... he's got six employees. His kid has a business degree to help dad. Yeah. Like, what a supportive kid. You mentioned it already, but damn. Yeah. Josh really is like, I'm going to be a part of the family. He's got a big, like, Midwestern... Yeah. work ethic about you know about this stuff he's a good kid good for him good hey josh we love you and i love the part where steve they ask him about being followed by the pez company and he was like yeah i heard stuff about that and you know at the time i thought that but i think i was probably just being paranoid and the filmmaker jumps in and goes no, actually, we have documents that show Pez yeah. was following you. Yeah, I, I love Steve's reaction to that too. Is he just starts laughing? Yeah, because it's like that relief of like, oh my god, I wasn't because <laughs> he's you know he's been diagnosed bipolar. He's like using the word paranoid to describe himself. Like clearly, he doesn't feel that his feelings were valid. And then to be told like, nope, you weren't crazy. You were perceiving things accurately. It's right. like, oh, yeah, vindication. Yeah. Just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you. Yeah. That is a, specifically about Pez. That is a quote from Curtis Cobain, lead about singer Pez. of the band Nirvana. <laughs> oh, man. I want a bootleg Cobain Pez dispenser. <laughs> oh, I don't want any toy that involves Kurt Cobain opening his mouth. <laughs> I know how that's going to end. So a Pez guy who is like a representative of the company, I don't remember. They interview him all throughout. And he's, yeah, I think it's uh, something Danby, I want to say. Yeah. He's a prick. I don't like him. Something like that. He's talking about this Gunther guy. He doubts Gunther would have sold illegal Pez dispensers to Steve. They interview Gunther. And he very openly talks about knowing Steve Glue, but does not admit to selling to him. Despast, he says. Yeah. Okay, so Gunther, I love Gunther for a lot of reasons. And uh, yeah, this idea of despast, where it's like, it, it, I, it's a phrase meaning it doesn't, it's it's gone, It's it happened. Right. There's no need to talk about it, which to me is kind of an admission. Like, Oh yeah, 100%. He for sure did it. He absolutely 100%. Like, I won't claim to know a lot of things that don't involve me. I know for a fact <laughs> that this man <laughs> is, it sold these things to Steve. Like, it's so clear. And I love that he talks about it and he's just like, look, it was Eastern Europe. Yeah. Everything that was going on had something illegal to it. Right. Like, this is the world we're in. And I love that. And I love, he says, a. there's one thing he says in particular that I really liked because it, it sums up this whole documentary. He says, there are some things that are not so serious, you know? Yeah. And it, it sums up this documentary and its position in like the true crime culture and I love that that his attitude is like they ask him were they were you doing anything illegal and he's like illegal 
always this word illegal. Like, he, and he, he even he even like makes fun of Scott McWinney. He's like, Scott used to say this word illegal. What does that mean? Who cares? Everything was illegal. Nothing was legal. Yeah, it's there are some things that are not so serious, and that's his whole thing. It's like, yeah, did I sell a bunch of counterfeit Pez to this guy and pocket the money myself? Probably, but who gives a shit? Did it hurt anyone? Did anyone die? Like, I'm in Hungary. I'm like, at any given moment, I'm less than 100 miles from an atrocity that's currently taking place. This is nothing. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know why Pez didn't think of this in the first place. Or maybe it was their first thought and it just took a while. But once they start realizing that dispensers from Europe are flooding the U.S. market, they just shut down the factories in Europe where they're coming from. Well, and this is after they've like started putting in video cameras, which is like, you guys didn't have those already? Yeah, exactly. Like, How- I'm not for the surveillance state, but it just surprises <laughs> me that this corporation that's so concerned about this gray market that's happening is like they're trying all of these different things and not doing the like very simple things that they probably should have been doing to start with. Yeah, we're well into the surveillance video era by this point in history. I've seen crisp video of Tupac beating the shit out of someone in Las Vegas shortly before he was murdered. Oh, wow. And that's um, everyone has seen that. Was it was he beating the shit out of uh, a Pez collector? He was beating the shit out of the guy that some people claim murdered him. Okay. Who knows? But nothing to do with Steve Glue or Pez dispensers? Not really. Did they they ever make a Tupac Pez dispenser? Oh, man. I mean, I would get that and the Cobain Pez dispenser, (laughs) and I would have them together. Anyway. Do you think El Duce was the guy that Pez hired to spy (laughs) on, (laughs) to follow? I hope so. I hope it was Courtney Love. Send her I in mean, to break up another thriving community. God she damn it. She was probably in Europe at the time. <laughs> sure. At least at some points. Touring, yeah. if nothing else. I want to know if her and Steve Glue were ever in Hungary at the same time. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, they shut down the factories. And Steve thinks it's because of him. The Pez people interviewed dispute that. But it seems like Steve's probably... Right. I mean, I think Steve's probably a part of it. I think that there was probably other stuff going on, too. Like, if they're selling these things to Steve, they're selling them to other people. Yeah. And if there's uh, if this is going on, there's other stuff going on. Like, and again, yeah, it wasn't a great time <laughs> in, right. that, in that place. And also, I don't know what Pez's sales look like at this point in their history. Like, you got to kind of wonder if maybe the collector's market is more profitable than actually being Pez the company. And if that might be part of this this issue, because if they're shutting down factories, I feel like, I mean, I don't know, that Scott McWinney guy seems very unstable. So (laughs) who knows what's in his head? Yeah, I imagine Pez wasn't like thriving at this point in history. I mean- In the 90s? Yeah. Like it's a fun thing to- fuck with as a kid but also it feels like kind of a choking hazard that yeah. i watched an episode of pawn stars once where the item the person brought in was a pez dispenser gun and oh, like the one johan points at the cameraman yeah and when they interview him they only made it for a brief amount of time because of course you don't want to shoot a fucking piece of hard candy at the back of your throat also, no. just the optics of, you know, 
putting a gun in your mouth to get a piece that's, of candy? That's the Kurt Cobain Pez dispenser. <laughs> exactly. It's actually a shotgun that fires a Pez pellets. What a weird choice. That's one you can get on the black market still for cost of money. Costs a lot of money. Yeah. And so there is a sad moment in this documentary, and that would be the part about Steve's wife, Kathy, getting Uh diagnosed with Parkinson's. And for the next few minutes after we learn about that, it's just a documentary about how to be a good person and a good husband, (laughs) because Steve seems to be that. Like, he seems like a very, very good guy. Yeah. Well, and it seems like he's never really been a bad guy, but just that like he's he's very he f- seems very remorseful about the times that he didn't think he was being a good enough partner to his wife. Yeah. Like he he's definitely like he gets choked up and he says like I don't want to talk about it, but I like I'm I wasn't doing what I needed to do. Or, but he was also he has this thing where he talks about like I was doing what I thought I needed to do to be a man. Yeah. And then, like, he realizes that was an illusion. Like, he's confronting his masculinity on his Pez journey, which is fun. Yeah, it's great. Um, Yeah. And I really, yeah, again, it's just another one of those moments you're like, yeah, Steve's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like Steve a lot. What he chooses to do with that newfound energy and and focus is kind of, like, weird, but... At this point, it's like he's gone so deep into the Pez world that it's like, well, whatever he does is probably going to be Pez concerned at this point. Yeah, and his next move is kind of weird. Yeah. He starts (laughs) designing his own Pez dispensers, spends half a million dollars. To, to like, have them made, have them manufactured, have them shipped, have them, like, all, like, he basically is like, I'm going to be Pez now. I'm going to be the Pez company at this point. And it works at first. Like, he sells a million dollars worth of Pez dispensers the first year. Yeah, but... But then, and here's the thing, at one point when he's pitching this idea to us, the viewers, he's like, and I was assured that all my designs would be exclusive to me. And just hearing him say it felt ominous to me. I was like, someone's going to copy these, obviously. And of course, Pez are the ones who copied it. And not just that, they released all of his designs as misfit Pez dispensers, as if to say... This is some shit we would never do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's it's like it it's brutal on multiple levels because it's like for one, your mistake here, the mistake you learn, the lesson you learn here, Steve, is that you can't beat them at their own game. Like right. if you try to go legit by beating them in their arena, you're not going to win because you're going to spend half a million dollars and mortgage your fucking house on making sure that all of this goes the way you want it. They don't have to spend anything. (laughs) Right. It's just operational costs for them. And they can just crush you while at the same time pouring a little lemon juice in the wound by saying, these suck and we hate them and we're going to sell them at a loss. Yeah, they're able to sell them for less than what it costs Steve just to make his. Yeah. Much less what he sells them for. And so... His entire inventory is basically worthless at that point. They do this dramatization where he's burying the boxes in the backyard and it's like like they're the E.T. games. Yeah. The Atari E.T. games. And it's like, he didn't really do that, right? There's not like a burial, a mass grave of Pez dispensers, I hope. Yeah. It would be funny if there was. I hope that's (laughs) out there in the desert somewhere. And yeah, so he loses all of his money. He goes $250,000 in debt. They have to fire everyone 
at the company. But then in the end, it's a happy enough story because he he bounces back by starting a blog about his experience. <laughs> and it seems like he's still probably one of the foremost experts on Pez dispensers. Yeah, I do love that he's like Scott McQueen is a footnote in my story. He's a plot point in my story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good line. Yeah, and I mean that's that's kind of how it ends. His his dreams end up getting destroyed by the Pez company, which yeah. I think we all had to see that coming. They weren't going to let. Yeah, look, you can't go up against Big Candy. Yeah, yeah, not the Big, big P. Big novel, big novelty. Yeah, they're going to take you down every time. Pez, <laughs> Pez, are you kidding? Do you know the crimes they've committed? Yeah. Exactly. They're like they're like Coca-Cola or the Shell Corporation. We've toppled governments on yeah. behalf of Pez. <laughs> Gaddafi? That was Pez. <laughs> Both sides of it. Exactly. <laughs> 80s and the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that ever happened to Gaddafi. Oh man. What a way to put it. All the bad things that happened to Gaddafi. He did some bad things. <laughs> The real victim of this story, I think we can all agree, is Muammar Gaddafi. Although the way he was killed was pretty brutal. I mean, that was uh, metal, I think, <laughs> is how I would describe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah metal. It's very Gnarly. American Horror Story-esque. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. Anyway. They suddenly last summered that motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the Pez Outlaw. The Pez Outlaw. It's fun. It's a fun story. It's not, I mean, I don't know if I would call it feel good, but it's feel better than most true crime. Yeah. That's for sure. I would agree with that. It won't bum me out. If you were to be an outlaw of a, for a thing, what would it be? You mean like importing, exporting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Like if they were to call you the blank outlaw. Um, I don't know. I've always wanted to try whale meat. <laughs> Maybe I could get that's apparently a, a huge thing in Japan oh, yeah. again. Yeah, that's that's I mean, it, that would not be as feel good a documentary, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably not. I just panicked. I couldn't come up with a good answer. I don't know what's what's the out there. Meet outlaw. <laughs> what's out there in the rest of the world for me to import into the United States? Yeah, what we are they making? All in, the, we got all the shit. Maybe some what are British they candy. In Eastern European. The chattering. I would be the chattering teeth outlaw. Just importing <laughs> little wind up chattering teeth. Yeah, that would be a good one. Okay, what about this Johan guy though that they introduce and then like a, there's a lot of like he's a mysterious figure and I think he's done horrible things. Yeah, but they don't explain any of it. No, again, they like don't go into any of it. They're just like people laugh nervously and are like, I can't really talk about him. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, well, we're not going to touch that. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this was good. It's good. People <laughs> should watch it. And Andy, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. For doing the pod. What do we have to plug before we get out of here? AdamToddBrown.Substack.com. I'll be back to using that. We got some big changes coming with Unpops. Our 500th episode's coming. Oh, shit. Uh, that'll be out next what week. What number was it when we did that show outside and we did the live recording? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, and we did like, it was at somebody, it was at Chet's place. Was it one of the like, I don't know. Like one of the this was like a couple of years round number ones three hundred like, yeah it was like a big like it was like, I want to say three hundred maybe three hundred yeah I've record okay. I've recorded five hundred of those those damn things I don't that's wild I don't remember anything but yeah the five hundredth episode 
That'll well, be congrats. Out. Congratulations on 500 episodes. Hey, thanks. Uh, and uh, Andy, what do you got to plug? Well, uh, you can say, as I mentioned, I was on an episode of Life Was Peachy. You can check that out, talking about Slipknot's uh, album Iowa, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I am at Andy underscore Cell, S-E-L-L, on, I think, Instagram and Twitter. And um, although, who's on Twitter anymore? Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. I should mention, follow this show on Instagram, at True Crime Sucks, especially because we post what documentary we're talking about a couple days before the episode goes up. So then you can watch the documentary. So, yeah, if you want to know what we're going to be covering, follow us on Instagram. Or just follow us on Instagram because it's cool. It's a cool thing for you to do. It is cool. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. It's very, a lot of things are cool. Also cool is uh, Look Good for the Boys just started its fifth season. And you can check out our first episode of the fifth season is about the Final Destination movies. We've got some other stuff coming up. Uh, You may want to watch the Boogeyman trilogy for a future episode. Mm -hmm. And, um... School, school. I know I keep saying it's coming back. I swear it. It's coming back. Uh-huh. I'm going to celebrate, like, what, 25 episodes of that or something at some point? <laughs> Someday. 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 In, like, two years. All uh, right. Yeah. And uh, let's get out of here. Andy, let's say goodbye. It. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.